You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Um, We're going to be thinking today um, on breaking up the passage into three sort of main headings, uh, thinking about to be following Jesus, thinking about to be met by Jesus, and thinking about what it is to be saved by Jesus. To be following, to be met by, and to be saved. See, our story begins here. uh, Jesus, he's away with his disciples at this point. Um, He has recently made a tactical withdrawal from Jerusalem. Uh, Why did Jesus need to make a tactical withdrawal? Because people want to kill him at this point in John's Gospel. Um, And they've said, look, we don't want to kill you because um, of of, of healing this person. We want to kill you because you, a mere man, call yourself yourself the son of God. Jesus calling himself God. That's pretty significant. Jesus called himself God. Um, And if someone does that, you're like, oh, I should probably figure out if he's legit. Um, Because if he is, there's some pretty big implications to that. (laughs) Uh, So the disciples have pulled back. They're like, we'll just let things cool down. Uh, And it's nice, and it's quiet, and it's calm, and there's no one holding rocks about to pip them at Jesus and his disciples. But then in comes a message. A message is they're nice and quietly sitting down. You see that message in verse 3 in our text today. It's a message that comes to Jesus. It's almost like he's sitting there, he's chilling out, and then the phone goes off in his pocket. He's like, oh, what's going on now? Oh, someone's contacted me for a while. It's just been, you know, I haven't been trying to check the the, uh, X. What is it? X? Is it X now? It's not Twitter anymore. It's X. (laughs) And and he whips out his phone, gives it to the disciples, and then they say, hey, Lord, it says that Lazarus, the one you love, he is ill. Sad face emoji. And uh, Jesus says, oh, write and reply. This illness does not lead to death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. If you're there and you're the disciples, you're happy with that answer. That's a good answer. Thank you, Jesus, for that answer. We can stay put, stay safe, and stay out of trouble. But if you're on the other side of that message, you don't like that answer. See, Jesus doesn't go. You know, sending a message in the ancient Near East at that time, it's not easy. And it's a desperate plea at this point. 
Lazarus is sick. Your friend is sick. And if these, if uh, Mary and Martha are searching for Jesus at this time of turmoil, where they want to kill Jesus and they're trying to get a message to Jesus, they know it's a pretty big deal. Lazarus, he is ill. And if you've heard anything so far in the Gospel of John over the last six weeks, you know that Jesus can do something about this, right? He's healed the blind man. He's calmed the wind and the waves. He's made the paralyzed walk. Jesus has got some skills. And here we learn something about following Jesus, to be following Jesus. Jesus, verse 5, it says, it tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. What are you doing, Jesus? Get there. Heal him. But he waits. Why does Jesus wait? Well, if you're hanging out on that question, just keep reading. Keep your Bible open. Summary, because he loves his friends and because he's got something better for his friends. Now, I'm sure in the moment, the disciples and for the sister, this reaction may not have seemed loving. Jesus, what are you doing? You're waiting. How is this loving? How is this kind? How is this caring? I thought God was love. And I'm sure we've also found at times that we've prayed, we've reached out to Jesus, we've asked big questions, and we feel like we haven't been heard. There's been no reply. We are waiting. You ever felt that way? What's going on? God, I sent you a message. Got on my knees, went to the prayer meeting, been coming to church. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. Now, the reason why we read that whole reading, yeah, we know how the story ends, don't we? When we come to questions as to why does he let him wait, we just heard it. These people that are waiting, that may be right now confused, they saw the glory of God when they saw their brother, their friend Lazarus, raised from the dead. That's where it ended. Now, at the moment... They're in a time that's frustrated. They're feeling unheard. But this passage is teaching us, I think, some perspective. Isn't it? Some God with perspective. That when they pray and they, when they reach out to Jesus, he knows the bigger picture and he has a plan and his plan is greater than their own. See, for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus didn't say no. He said, not yet. He doesn't give an immediate yes because his plan is better than that. It was a plan that involved some temporary suffering, but in the end it led to a greater experience of his love and of his mercy and of his grace as they got to see God's glory. That theme has been trending through the seven signs. Have you noticed that? God in his mystery and in his power, he, he somehow knows that the human wiring can bear more than what we think. And when he allows the darkness just to get a little bit more, somehow the joy is so much more greater. I still don't know how that works. 
I don't know why I'm wired that way, but I'm so glad that God knows exactly how I'm made, how I'm created. And I know that always on the other side, that dawn is so much more brighter and beautiful. So I want to encourage you as we even just launch in John 11, when the times that we feel that Jesus feels distance, the times where we feel that God doesn't care, remember our feelings aren't fact. Then perhaps when we feel that God, when he's not answering our prayers or our requests, it's because that in those time, times, he has a greater plan than we have for ourselves. And that's a plan where we'll see his glory in a greater way than we could plan a scheme than we could. Suffering can suck. Suffering does suck. Sorry, correction. Suffering does suck. But for the believer in Christ, for the Christian, it does lead to a time of a greater experience of God's love and God's grace. And if you are able to take a posture that is focused on eternity and not now on what is temporary, to be following Jesus means that you can trust that everything will be okay. In the end, everything will be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. To be following Jesus means trusting his way won't always be our way. And there's another following to be following Jesus as we crack open these first few verses. Another to be following Jesus. You see, Jesus does decide to eventually go back to Jerusalem, doesn't he? He's like, all right, boys, off we go. We're going back to the belly of the beast. They've sharpened their rocks now. They're bigger. Are you ready? He doesn't say that. Sorry, that's poetic wise. Um, and the disciples don't like this plan. Did you notice that? The disciples don't like this plan. And we get to the point where Thomas goes, well, Thomas is one of his disciples, one of Jesus' students, one of his apprentices. And Thomas goes, well, let us go. So that we, so that we, so that we, have I just died? I'm not in glory yet. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Oh, maybe I need to put this on my other hip. Is that better? Oh, that is better. Look at that. These hips. That, 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 I'm working out. Okay, here we go. All right. Thomas. Thomas, let us go that we may die with him. Now, the text offers no uh, comment as to his tone. We're not told whether Thomas was, let's go, let's go die with Jesus. Or was Thomas, this is how I picture Thomas, let us go, we will die with him. It's charging in, charging back in, belly the beast. We don't know. But whatever it was, you know his posture, we know what was coming. It was a posture of sacrifice. Let us go that we may die with him. Being a follower of Jesus is a is a, a posture of prepared to sacrifice. C.S. Lewis says that when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. We are to die to self. 
to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Are you, are you prepared to die for Christ? It's a big question, that one. Are you prepared to die for Christ? It feels a little bit empty. Should I just get a handout like this? Yeah, okay, all right. No more pacing for you, Louis. Oh, maybe that's the thing. That thing was all wobbly. Hold on, we will, we will try again. It has a threaded screw thing on there, but it doesn't fit. I don't know. It's... I just teach the Bible. I don't know stuff about that. That sounds better. I think we're doing better. All right. Christian, is your life defined by sacrificial living in your following of Jesus? Or what aren't you prepared to sacrifice for Jesus? What aren't you prepared to sacrifice for Jesus? Do you have some stuff? There's some like little personal private stuff like, I'm all for Jesus, just not this stuff. Yeah? What aren't you prepared to give up? Let us go that we may die with him. That is what it means to be following Jesus. Because take note, if you're still clutching onto something, it means you've got no room to hold on to him. It's like any Simpsons fans here, Homer with his hand in the vending machine. I feel like that's a, that's a, anyone? They're going to cut off his arm. Yeah, we've got some Simpsons fans here. Come on, they're going to cut off his arm because his hand's stuck in the vending machine. He tried to reach and get a Coke can. You're going to have to cut off your arm, mate. And then just before they cut the blades, it's like, hold on a minute. Are you still holding on to the Coke can? He's just like, yeah. Like, just let go of the Coke can and you'll be free. He lets go and everyone laughs at him. He pulls his hand out. It's like, oh. You know what that is? That's a picture of not being prepared to sacrifice your life for Christ because they're too busy holding on to the stupid Coke can. Jesus says, let go of the Coke can and take hold of me, eternal life. To be following Jesus, to be met by Jesus. Let's meet Mary and Martha. Back to Bethany they go, back to Jerusalem, and here we meet Mary and Martha. This isn't the first time we've met Martha and Mary uh, in our Bibles. We'll recognise Martha and Mary uh, Martha sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap. She's the one that's like running around the house and her busybody Martha. Mary's the one that sits at Jesus' feet. She's like, oh, be more like Mary and just, you know, learn from Jesus. You know, but, you know, Luke records that we can sort of tell that Mary, Martha and Mary, they're like, they're like typical siblings, typical sisters. You know, two daughters, chalk and cheese, all right? You've got Martha. She's the responsible one. She's ordered, you know, she likes things to be worked out and, you know, she likes routine, you know, she's got the labelling machine for all the spices in the spice rack and all the jars look the same. You know, she's like, she likes a church service to be a very particular way. She knows what she's doing at any given time. Martha is probably a Presbyterian. Church joke. And then there's Mary. Mary, man, she's passionate. She knows how to express her feelings. She's the one who John has already reminded of us earlier in this chapter that Mary was the one that washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, I don't care what culture you come from. That's just straight out weird. Is that normal? I don't know. But it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. 
We've got Mary. Her affection for Jesus is beautiful. She's a woman that has this her own personal, passionate ways of showing her love for Jesus, sometimes making other people feel a little bit uncomfortable. She's probably a Pentecostal. I spent time in both these churches, so I'll take shots from both. It's all right. And someone can stereotype me too. Um, we are these two sisters, two different sisters, but we've got the same situation, don't we? Two sisters and Lazarus, their brother. They love Lazarus. They love their brother and they love Jesus. Two sisters, same family, come from the same factory, same upbringing, and they've got the same grief, the same brother, the same death. Now let's look at these two different sisters, how they meet Jesus. What is it like to be met by Jesus as these sisters? Well, first in your reading, you've got Martha. You've got Martha. And Martha, in her grief, in verse 21, she comes out to Jesus and she says to him, note these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, well, Jesus who is perfect, Jesus who is God in flesh, Jesus who loves Martha, he responds to this woman, he responds to this woman of nobility and good character and of thoughtfulness. He responds to her and her grief by giving her exactly what she needed in that moment. What does he do? He gives Martha words of encouragement and words of truth. He says, your brother will rise again. She says, yes, I know. And Jesus, he continues his comfort and counsel and his consolation by then giving her a wonderful, thoughtful, reformed Presbyterian answer, doesn't he? Meets her where she is. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asks, do you believe this? He asks, do you believe this? Gages, engages with her thoughtfully, intellectually, through her mind. And Martha responds with what she knows, and she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And Martha is comforted. And she's met by Jesus, the perfect counsellor. And she's able to turn around and go back. How good is Jesus? Gave her exactly what she needed. And is this the way with Mary, these two very different sisters? Well, check out Jesus. Mary notices Martha comes back. What's Martha been up to? She's somehow looking different. She's obviously encountered Jesus. And Martha, she runs out to Jesus. She runs out to Jesus, and you got to picture the emotion of this moment. She falls, falls at his feet, and he, she looks into his eyes, and she cries out. Notice, she cries out the exact same words as her sister, and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Passion, affection, desperation. Now, notice Mary... Her expression of grief, it's nothing like her sisters of Martha. It's unique to Mary. Beautiful Mary. 
Mary's heart is expressed in a tidal wave of emotion. She is weeping. Like the original language here speaks of a cry that when it sounds like they're being like suffocated by their own sobs. You know, their face is blotchy and there's tears coming down. You know, it's like bloodshot, screwed up eyes. You know, it's like... <laughs> you ever had a good cry like that? I've got three daughters. I see it quite often in the mirror. No. <laughs> what does Jesus do in this moment? See, Jesus, who is perfect, who is God in flesh, Jesus who loves her, Jesus responds. He responds to this woman of feeling and of passion and of emotion by giving her exactly what she needed in that moment. What is that? The comforting presence of a good friend who will share her with you. Still got your Bible open? It says that Jesus stays with her. This is a beautiful, tender moment. He just stays with her in her lament. He stays with her and also cried at the terrible result of sin that has caused this death in the world. See, what is it like to be met by Jesus? Jesus is the perfect, wonderful, sympathetic, empathetic, thoughtful counsellor. He'll meet you exactly where you're at. He'll give you exactly what you need if you're willing to go to him. Two observations that I think are really important to take away from Mary and Martha here. It's worth commenting on a couple of side notes, footnotes. First, I think that this picture of Jesus has to be the one of the most helpful verses of the Bible when it comes to the question of suffering in this world. God is so good, then why is there so much suffering in this world? You know, suffering, 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 the question of suffering. Well, firstly, what we see in John 11 is that God, Jesus, cares about suffering in this world. He cares. He really cares. Because we see Jesus wonderfully, perfectly comfort Martha and Mary in their suffering because these women, because these women in their grief were completely willing to come to him. And he comforts them. And he comforts them in real but legitimate ways. And he gives them exactly what they need. This, this should tell us that God is not far off when it comes to the, our suffering. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not this emotionally estranged, sitting in the clouds with a stiff upper lip, fatalistically looking down on this world. He's not Buddha who's sitting there going, oh, well, if you just didn't have any emotion, you wouldn't have any pain or think of suffering. He's not doing that. He's not Muhammad saying, oh, well, God just does what he wants. You have to deal with it. He's not an atheist. He's just like, well, this is just the result of a bunch of chemical reactions that have all collided at this moment. And the reason that you're crying is because it's a, it's a sympathetic nervous response because you need to get the dust out of your eyes because you're obviously rolling around to... I don't know, I just, my, my logic can't go so far. I guess I'm not willing to come to God. Um, excuse me. Jesus, through his life and through his words and his actions and through his reactions, Jesus, he makes God known and he shows us that the God of the Bible is one who is willing 
and who wants to meet his people where they are so that he might begin to give them and lead them in exactly what they need. So generous. So kind. Do you believe this about Jesus? Do you know you can go to Jesus at any time for the mess in the bucket of this world? You can't. Like, does this change your perception of that the secular world might tell you about the God of the Bible? Like, look at what he's doing here. This is beautiful. I wish I was more like this. Second observation. Look at what Martha says. See, Martha... Martha has her greatest moment of theological clarity in her greatest moment of sorrow and calamity. Check this out. In verse 27, it says, her words, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Okay. Now, these words are so blindingly awesome that John, who's writing this gospel, penning it down, He recycles them to reuse these words as the purpose statement of his gospel. This profound revelation of who God is, who Jesus is, comes at her deepest and darkest moment. I think it's wonderful for us to see in action that the Bible, in the Bible, that Often in our own suffering and pain, when we are at our lowest, that is when we see God at his greatest. I know that in my own life, the moments of my greatest desperation and pain and hardship, I've had those moments where it's like, man, when Jesus is all you have, it's all I need. The rest is just a distraction. So I really want to highlight this because some of you right now are suffering. Some of you tomorrow might be suffering. Some of you in 2024, it might be a year of suffering. It could be a worse year of suffering. But it's important to know that for the Christian, for the Christian, there is a sweetness. For the Christian, there is a beautiful place in suffering that is accessed through prayer and scripture where God is pleased to give us rest and peace and a greater knowledge and revelation of him if we are willing to go to him in our suffering. So if you are suffering, if you are grieved, take it to Jesus. Be met by him in conversation, by falling on your knees, by just being honest with God and giving him what you got. Lord, if you had been here, my father would not have died. That's all I want. And then let Jesus lead you in the comfort he has planned. And do that so that you may have the hope of experiencing his love and a knowledge of him like never before. This is what it's like to be met by Jesus. One last person to be met by Jesus, Lazarus. Lazarus. Jesus, at this point now in the story, he's come to Lazarus' tomb. 
The crowd has now followed Mary and it's now fully formed and this crowd is swarmed around Jesus and Jesus can hear between the snot-filled sobs of Mary and those that are grieving. He can hear the crowd murmuring, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind kept this man dying? And Jesus can also see. He can see around him family members and friends who have had their joy sucked out of them because of this death that has afflicted them in the loss of Lazarus. And Jesus can feel, Jesus feels this mass sensation of sorrow that exudes from the crowd because they all now stand before this tomb, the tomb, this ugly tribute to sin's curse and death that has taken their friend Lazarus. And the text tells us that emotions are welling up in Jesus' heart. Emotions that the text describes as Jesus being deeply moved. Deeply moved. Here, the language of Jesus being deeply moved, it's the same language as indignation or anger. Deeply moved doesn't really give us a good appreciation of what's going on. It could also be known as the language of that of a snorting animal. See, because the curse of sin and how it brings death and hopelessness inside Jesus right now, as he looks at this tomb, in him is a building rage. And it's in this moment, there is a welling up of anger and he sets his face towards this tomb in order to charge it down like a raging bull. And it's in this posture with the crowd looking on, Jesus having just wiped the tear away from his eye. He says the most outlandish thing he possibly could have said in this moment. Still got your Bible open? What's he say? Take away the stone. Are you serious, Jesus? Like, picture that. Four days later, after you've buried your closest relative or best friend, and you bring your mate, Jesus, along to the gravesite because he was doing something else for two days. It's like, oh, I heard the circuit report was good, Jesus. It's nice of you to come to the funeral. And then he's just like, mm, yeah, dig it up. Dig it up. Take away the stone. What? Are you serious, Jesus? Like in the old King James Version, like it goes on to say, Lord, there's an odor. King James is like, he stinketh. There's a Bible verse you'll memorize. Lazarus, he stinketh. In our house, if people eat too much dairy, they stink it. But it's still alive. Yeah, we digress. But in this moment, this heated, emotionally charged moment, it seems that only Martha can utter a word at this point. She seems to be, she seems to be the only one close enough to Jesus who's willing to speak in the face of this outrageous demand. Oh, dig it up. <laughs> Open up the tomb. But the stone is rolled back, isn't it? The stone is rolled back. And it's in this moment, Jesus, he looks up to the heavens. And he praises his father. And he prays publicly. 
And he prays plainly to make it obvious that the authority behind the next 10 seconds is completely from God the Father. And Jesus, after praying, he turns his face down towards this dark cave carved out of the rock. And Jesus, he draws in his breath. And he screams into this empty darkness. I'm not going to scream it, but I want you to imagine it. Jesus, in all the passion of being deeply moved after weeping at the loss of his friend Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Some Bible commentators say that if he hadn't have said the name Lazarus, all of the bodies would have come out of the cave. Lazarus, come out. And as these words leave Jesus' mouth, it's the same mouth that spoke all things into creation. It's the same mouth that spoke life into the dust of Adam. It's from his mouth. His words now speak life back into what was moments ago, the rotting corpse of the man Lazarus. And in this moment of bewilderment, as the crowd stands aside, looking at Jesus, shouting into darkness, this moment of bewilderment quickly becomes a moment of terror because now out of this cave stumbles a mummified body. body. Zombie apocalypse style. Still bound. The light of the world just made a demand to the darkness of death. And look who won. Out of the came comes Lazarus, still bound, stumbling from the darkness towards the light of the world. And what a moment. A moment for all to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you too may have life in his name. It's a moment where there is so much clarity that comes in the rising of Lazarus. It's a, it's a moment where all of the ambiguous claims in this story find their foundation and fruition. All of this absolute clarity that rushes into the minds of Mary, Martha, the disciples, of everyone that's been engaging Jesus in these last four days. There's clarity in Jesus' reply message that this illness will not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. There's clarity in Jesus' words to the disciples that it was good that he was not there so that they may believe. There's clarity in Jesus' declaration to Martha I am the resurrection of the life. There's clarity, clarity in who Jesus is revealing himself to be. There's clarity here for you today that this historical, actual, factual, verified by many witnesses and written and recorded for our joy, that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God the Father and empowered by God the Holy Spirit for the salvation and life of this world. Do you believe this? Do you believe his profession of from himself that he is the resurrection and the life? 
Can you give a resounding yes to that question? Have you opened your mind and your soul to give a resounding yes to Jesus? Do you know if you're a child of God or not? Do you want others to say yes to this question? What are you prepared to do so that others may have an opportunity to respond to this question? Who are you praying for that they might have an opportunity? Do you know if you're a child of God? If you're not sure yet, you can at least say to God, well, I think I want to be. If you haven't crossed the line yet, you can still ask God for the gift of faith and trust and revelation so that you get to be. And if you're there and you're standing on what feels like this abyss, and if you're going to take another step, everything's going to change. You don't know what's going to happen. All you have to do is admit to him your sin and you know, that, and just know that you will and can receive his affection and adoption by the Holy Spirit so that you will know deep down that you are forgiven and loved. But maybe you're still not there yet. Maybe you still feel like your sin separates you too far from God, that God could never forgive me. Maybe you still feel like there's no way that I could enter into that. Don't believe that lie. Instead, believe the truth and the good news of the Bible, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And believe the testimony that Jesus was more than simply the God-man who raised people from the dead. Believe Jesus as the Son of the Most High God who has died in our place for our sin, and that he is risen from the dead. Believe and receive that his death was in place for you. Believe that he has done the work to take away your sin. It is finished. Believe that he went to the cross and that he went into the tomb and that he put sin to death, he put sin away. Believe that you can give to God your sin and know that through Jesus, your sin is gone. That's not coming, walking out, zombie style. You can put it to death as you give it to Jesus. If you believe this, you will have life in his name. And you can trust that he will fight for you and not against you when it comes to the last day when he comes to judge the living and the dead. That's scraping the surface of John 10. To be following Jesus and to be met by Jesus. And also to be saved by Jesus. See, Jesus longs to courageously lead you in the mess of this world. Jesus longs to wonderfully counsel you in the lament 
of this world. Jesus is prepared to it's his sweet spot to grieve with you in the suffering of this world. And we'll all have moments like that. We'll have Thomas moments. We'll have Martha moments. We'll have Mary moments, maybe except for some of the guys. If they're stoic and too cool to school. But I want every one of you to have a Lazarus moment. We're all Lazarus, dead, or have been a Lazarus, spiritually dead, in the tomb, can't come out, can't run out to meet Jesus, but we might be able to hear his voice. Hear the voice of Jesus, he says, come out, come out of your darkness, stumble forward to God in the person of Jesus, hear his call. Believe his call. Come out. Get out of the tomb and have life in his name. Jesus offers you this life. Jesus offers you this life. Life with freedom from the penalty, power, and ultimately the presence of sins because he became the substitute and and took away the sins of the world. So let us confess that and profess that today. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.